1 Peter chapter 2, 4 through 10. I want to start with a question. How many of you guys have ever heard of the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California? Raise your hand. Okay, a couple of you guys. Okay, that's good, good. There's a crazy story behind this house. Uh, Sarah Winchester inherited the Winchester Rifle Company when her husband died in 1881, and they lived in Boston. Now, they were, when they got married, they had a child within their first couple years, and, and, and their only child, and she died of, uh, of some kind of disease, but she, her infant daughter died. And because of these tragedies, she never really got over that. Because of the tragedies of her, of her baby girl, because of the tragedies of her husband, and then her husband also had a son from a, a previous marriage that died instantly, um, she was like a spiritual wreck. So in Boston, she went to this medium the spiritual medium in Boston. And the medium said this to her while supposedly channeling her late husband, that she should leave her home in Boston and travel west. And when she gets west, she must uh, plant and buy a house and she must continuously build a house for herself and for the spirits of the people who had fallen victim to the Winchester rifle. And so this is what she did. She took the medium's advice and she moved out west and she planned and bought a house, a farmhouse in San Jose, California. And for 36 straight years, she had people building on this house, building this house. Now, a lot of people today say that the house is haunted. I called Cyrus. I knew he was from San Jose, California. So I said, Cyrus, you ever hear of this house? He goes, oh, yeah, man, that house is creepy, right? He says, it freaks me out. Then I said, okay, I just want to let you know because I'm going to say that to the church. He goes, well, then he goes, well, it didn't really freak me out that bad, right? <laughs> but I think what he says, we, we say, when they say it's haunted, Cyrus said something very profound. He says, I don't think it's haunted. But it's the very real reality that it could be demon, you know, should be some demology, uh, demonology there. Some demons present. It's that wicked. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy house. It's massive. There are about 161 rooms, 40 bedrooms, two ballrooms, 47 fireplaces, over 10,000 panes of glass, 17 chimneys, two basements, three elevators. It started out on a property of about 162 acres, but now the estate has really been reduced because in California, reduced to about 4.5 acres, and which is mainly all house and guest house. So the, the crossing sits on a lot of, a, I think, about two acres. So think twice the size of nothing but a house. The pictures are phenomenal. Well, this morning, we read about another house. And it's a house that we're a part of that is continuously being built. And it's being built by King Jesus. And it's not possessed. There aren't any ghosts. But it's a, it's a house of joy. It's a house of love. It's a house of blessing. It's, it's the church. And we are a part of this building project that he began 2,000 years ago. And we as a church uh, here at the crossing, uh, we exist for a purpose, a number of purposes, but one purpose we exist for is found right here. We exist to declare to the world the excellencies of King Jesus, who has called us out of darkness and into the marvelous light. That's our purpose here as a church and what we want to fulfill at the crossing. So let's look a little bit more closer at this passage. First, we see the bedrock, the bedrock in verses 4 and 6. The bedrock. First Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. 
Peter, right out of the back, says Jesus is this living stone. That word precious should immediately cause us to, to make our eyes go back to verses 18 and verses 19, where Peter says that we were ransomed by what? The precious blood of Jesus. So as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, the one that has been rejected and the one that we come to is Jesus the living stone. Well, the question is, well, what is a living stone? Because that doesn't make sense, right? A living stone? I mean, a stone is an inanimate object. It has no life to it. It is lifeless. It's just a stone. It's a rock. It's a paradox, kind of like government health care, right? Oh, yeah, I did go there. It's okay to laugh. That's all right. That's a good one. That's a good one. But a living stone... Stones, again, are an inanimate object. I remember, I was reminded this past week of a stupid fad back in the 1900s. Um, in fact, 1975 to 1976, when I was about five years old. Okay, we have a handful of people that come from the 1900s in here. And so this, this was the fad. It was the pet rock fad. How many of you guys remember the pet rock fad? Raise your hand. Oh, more than enough. Okay, good, good. See, we're, we're that's good. How many millennials ever heard of a pet rock? Oh, come on. I know you haven't. All right, all right. Yeah, pet rock fag. I mean, you could buy, this was crazy, and it was stupid, because you could buy a rock for $4, and people would actually buy a rock for $4, and, then, and this guy would send it to you in a box, and then you would color it, and it'd be your pet rock. It was, it was known as the perfect pet, because you didn't have to feed it, you didn't have to clean up after it, you didn't have to walk it, it was just there, and it brought you joy. Now, that's crazy, right? Now, I was five, I was like, Mom, Dad, I want a pet rock. They're like, no, son. We live, in, we live in Arizona, Tucson. You want a pet rock? There's millions out there in the backyard. Just go grab one, right? And so that's what I did. I grabbed the pet rock. Well, obviously, Peter is using a metaphor here when he says living rock to describe Jesus. He's the living rock because of the resurrection. He's the living rock because of the resurrection. What Peter wants us to do is he's, he's inviting his readers to contrast Jesus as the living rock to all the idols out there that are made of stone in their culture. So this would be a very vivid contrast when he says, Peter says that this, as you come to him, a living stone, he, it would be like, man, it would be a stark contrast between the idols that people worship that are just carved out of stone, then to Christ, the one who has resurrected from the dead. Again, so he's um, contrasting Jesus against all of the false deities. Peter says that this stone is unlike any of those lifeless, dead stone idols that you used to worship. You now worship the living stone. He is utterly different because he is alive. He conquered death. He's the living stone. And then Peter goes on to say he's also not only the living stone, but he is the cornerstone, the cornerstone. Look at 1 Peter 2, verse 6. For it stands in Scripture... In Scripture, and he quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion. Zion is just another uh, a word for Jerusalem, the city of David. I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen. And there's that word again, precious. Again, just highlighting Jesus as precious. And what Peter is actually doing is he's doing something really cool. He's taking these verses in the Old Testament, he quotes about six of them here, and he's tying them into the New Testament. And so he's, he's, he's trying to help us put the dots together that Jesus is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you guys recall 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's where God is speaking to David and says, David, I want you to build me a house. 
there was the tabernacle, but now um, God is saying to David, I want you to, to build me a temple. And he goes on, and by the time you get to end of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see that it's the Lord who is actually going to build this house. And this house is not mainly going to be a physical place, but it's going to be a spiritual house of an eternal kingdom that is going to be started through David, but is going to flourish, flourish and become the fulfillment through David's seed in which God will dwell. Well, that seed is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 and that temple. Again, one commentator said there's at least six Old Testament references that are cobbled together to bring about this truth. So we see the connection of the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7 prophecy about the temple, to Jesus. Peter then also quotes Psalm 118 in verse 7 where he says this. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone has become the cornerstone. And then Peter gives name to this cornerstone even more where he says in Acts chapter 4, 11, he quotes this verse in his sermon. He says, Jesus is the cornerstone in which you rejected. So Jesus is not only the living stone, but he's also the cornerstone. So Peter says that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these prophecies of this temple. He is the living stone who is also the cornerstone who are some are reject. Some reject him but others believe. This is a beautiful picture to see that this book, this story is, is one continuous story. It's the story of redemption. And so when Jesus talks about um, in, in um, Luke chapter 24 on the road of Emmaus, that beginning with the, the uh, prophets and the, and the scriptures and the Psalms, all these stories back here testify to him and testify and prove that he is the fulfillment of everything that's going on in the Old Testament. So the question is, well, what is the cornerstone? What is a cornerstone? Well, if you were building a house or any kind of structure back in the ancient times, back in these times, back in Jesus' times, the cornerstone was the most important stone. It was the stone that set the foundation in which the rest of the house would be built on. And so if the cornerstone was off, then you would, you would build a house that would not be stable. That probably would collapse. So you wanted to make sure that the cornerstone was set properly. It set the trajectory and the dimensions for the rest of the building to create and build a solid house, a solid building, a solid structure. Back then, and even today, because most houses back uh, in Israel and the Middle East are built out of stone and rock, you don't see a lot of wood houses because there's not a lot of wood. The cornerstone is the most important. It's the foundational stone. So if you didn't want to have a building end up like the Tower of Pisa, you better make sure your cornerstone was set correctly. This is a great illustration of what Jesus is to the church. He is the cornerstone. He is the solid rock so that the church that's built upon it is perfectly, um, its dimensions are perfectly set according to God's plan. This Jesus is the cornerstone. We look at verse 5. And we say it's the building of the church. He's the cornerstone of the church because of verse 5. This spiritual house, i.e. the church, that is it, is being built upon. Is being built upon. So again, Jesus is the cornerstone for the church. I love how Bob Thune um, talked about and expressed this passage, this, this verse. He said this. He says, ecclesiology, that's just a, a big word theologians use for the doctrine of the church. So ecclesiology, the, the doctrine of the church, is built on Christology, the doctrine of Christ. Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, is built on Christology, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. So if we want to understand the church, if we want to understand who we are, we understand what the church is about and what the church, how it's built, we have to understand who Jesus is. 
If you go outside and you go down to CSU campus and you ask them, any of the students there, hey, what is the church? Define the church for me. What are you going to hear? Well, you'll probably hear from like non-believers. Well, the church is a building in which people go to to worship, right? And then immediately we hear that and, and Christians will say, whoa, 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 we're not a building. The church is not a building, right? No, the church is a people who gather together. And you're like, yeah, that's right. That's good. That's true. We're not a building. We're not a structure physically. But then you get some, you know, whippersnapper out of seminary, and he's going to come and correct everyone and give you the correct definition. And he's going to say, no, the church is where they preach the word. They exercise the sacraments. Um, they have leadership to lead the people. That's what the church is. And that is also a good definition, but it's not the best definition. All three of these are actually partly true, but they leave out the most important aspect of what the church is and what they leave out. Go ahead. Jesus. Jesus, the cornerstone. They left out the cornerstone. Therefore, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, is built upon Christology because you can't have a definition of the church without Jesus. He's the cornerstone. This is what people, uh, Peter is saying. That's why the most important question that you can ask about what is the church is this, is does it build its foundation on Jesus? Does it build its values, its mission, its vision on the God-man and the, his message, the gospel? Does it build on Jesus? And are these characteristics and attributes of Jesus reflected in that body? Do, do, do you go to a church... And you see the love of Christ. You see the sacrifice of Christ. You see the grace of Christ, the mercy of Christ. Christ is the cornerstone of the church. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so this is why every week, every week when we, when we get up here, one of the first things we say is welcome visitors, but we say we're a simple people. We are people who love Jesus. We are people who want to be about his mission. The crossing is built on Jesus, the cornerstone. And this is who we come to each and every Sunday as our foundation to be built upon. Second, we see the building. So first we have the bedrock, which is Jesus. He's the cornerstone. Second, we see the building in verse 5. <clears throat> as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, church, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And here is the main heart of this text. The main verb is being built up. That's the main verb in which this whole section um, is built upon. That you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. As a spiritual house. So what Peter is emphasizing here is that when we come to Jesus, as you come to him, when we come to Jesus by faith and believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we now become living stones. We now go from dead men and women with dead hearts to now being alive. Why? Because of Jesus, the living stone, because of his resurrection. We become living stones who are now built upon one another to form this spiritual house called the church. This is one of the best illustrations of the church in all of Scripture right here that Peter gives us. Peter wants um, to the Christians, the ones he's writing then and the ones he's writing now, to contrast this new and greater spiritual temple, the church, with the stone temple in Jerusalem. Think about it. Think about why. 
The, the temple was what? It was the centerpiece of the Jewish religion. And, and it still is today, even though it's, it, it's kind of there, but not there, right? It's the centerpiece of it. This is where they, they believe that the presence of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple. This is where they would come yearly for the sacrificial systems so their sins would be dealt with. Well, when Jesus came, he was the truer and better temple. When Jesus came, he was the truer and better sacrifice. He fulfilled all the purposes of the temple back then in him. Therefore, there is no need for a stone physical temple anymore. Something greater is here. And that greater temple is now us, is now you and me. We are now the living stones Therefore, those who come to him, who repent and trust in Jesus, now become the temple, the living stones on earth in which God's presence dwells with his people. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says this, Do you not know that your body is what? A temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. So the presence of God no longer dwells in some physical structure in Jerusalem. He dwells within the people of God, those who repented and trusted in the living stone, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. This is why from Pentecost on, you never see a Christian building what? A temple, a structure to go for people to go and worship. Why? Because we are the temple. We are the living stones. And the other important fact, not only we are the living stones, but this, and this is so good, that we are living stones that are built upon one another. We are living stones built upon one another. I heard a story this past week of an ancient king in Sparta, in ancient Greece. He used to brag about the great walls of Sparta. He used to brag about it and said, they're so strong and they're so massive, just look at them. Well, one day, a neighboring king came and said, man, I hear about all these great walls that you have here that, 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 that defend your kingdom. And, and, and he goes, well, where are they? Because there were no walls in Sparta. He goes, where are these great walls? There were these massive walls, these strong walls. I don't, I don't see any out there. And the king of Sparta says, oh, they're here. And what he did is he started to point to his soldiers, his men, in his army. He goes, oh, see these? He pointed to his well-disciplined troops. Here they are. These are the men. These are the mighty walls of Sparta. That's kind of the same idea here with Jesus. King Jesus doesn't point to a physical structure back in Jerusalem. He looks at and sees his people. He says, here's my strong and beautiful church. And he points to you and me, the living stones who make up his church. What an incredible thought that we're a part of, a credible church that we're a part of. I want you to think about this a little bit more for a second. Notice it's not individual spiritual houses. He didn't say you're being built up to be your own individual spiritual house. But no, we are one spiritual house being built upon one another. Peter gives no room for Christians to say that I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. There are no stones who are laying out there by themselves being the church. No, the church is one spiritual building. We are built one upon another. Charles Spurgeon gives the greatest answer, in my opinion, to this statement, to the person that says, man, I love Jesus, but I I don't need to be a part of his church, and I don't love the church. This is what Spurgeon says. He says, I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I intend to, but I don't intend to give myself to any church. Spurgeon answers, 
well, now why not? And they answer, because I can be just as good a Christian without it. You guys ever hear that? Talking to your friends? We know these kind of, we know these people, right? I can be a better Christian by myself without the church because those church, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Well, Spurgeon says, now why not? And they said, because I can be. Spurgeon says, are you quite clear about that? And this is awesome. You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands by being obedient. Do you guys get that? Isn't that good? You can be as good a Christian by disobeying your Lord's commands as being obedient. And then Spurgeon gives this illustration. He goes, there's a brick. And what is the brick made for? It's made to build a house. It is of no use for the brick to tell you that it's just a good brick while it's kicking around on the ground by itself as it would be a part of a house. Actually, it's a good-for-nothing brick. So you rolling around stone Christians, I like that, Spurgeon, I don't believe that you're answering the purpose for which you have been saved. You're living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live. What a great answer. Spurgeon hits the nail on the head because he agrees with Peter and says that if you're a living stone, you're not to be unattached but we're built up upon one another. We are connected. We are linked. We are fastened to one another. We are one spiritual house. We are one church. And because of this, we are stronger. Because of this, we are more faithful, more fruitful, more attractive, and we can do more together. I mean, think about that for a second. When we all gather together and we use our gifts, we're all different. We all have different abilities, different giftings, different callings, different strengths, different weaknesses. We need each other. How much more can we accomplish together than by ourselves? So this just brings to a real practical point. The real practical point is is that we need to be gathering together all the more to encourage one another, to be more faithful, to be more fruitful, to be stronger to be built up, to be look more beautiful to the world. Not as individuals, but together. So point is, show up to Sunday gatherings. Show up to life groups on a consistent basis. Be consistent. Why? Because your presence matters. Your presence matters on Sunday morning. Your presence matters in life groups. Your presence matters at man school and, and the ladies of the crossing. And all the other other unofficial things that you do together as a church, your presence matters. I think sometimes you and I can undercut how important it is for us to be present during these times. How important it is for us to be present. I think one said it like this. He said, 90% of growth in the Christian faith is just showing up. It's just showing up. Why? Because you can't grow from a Sunday gathering if you don't show up. You can't grow from a life group if you don't show up. One of my favorite things about this church, about you guys, is on Sunday mornings, when the gathering is over, the last song is sung, sometimes I'll just stand in the back because you guys don't leave. You guys don't leave. You guys sit here and you encourage one another. You sit here and you listen to how your week was. You sit here and hear your burdens and your trials and your struggles. And it's not uncommon to see people sitting and praying for one another. It's not uncommon for for people to be rejoicing with one another and maybe just getting a job or graduating college or whatever it may be. 
And then you guys take it from here and you go out to lunch together. You guys cannot get enough of each other. It's awesome. This is what the church does. And this is why your presence is so important because if you don't show up, you can't encourage anybody. And no one can encourage you among other ways in which to minister. So be consistent. This is a major aspect of the church. We are one and we need to be around each other because we are built upon one another. You see, a life and a church built on Christ makes you a part of something greater, more beautiful, and you'll receive more joy than anything you can do by yourself. Sundays, get this, Sundays from 10 to 12 shouldn't be the, the days on your calendar where you say, well, I got a little wiggle room, I got some optional. Sundays from 10 to 12 should be non-negotiable for you. Unless you're going on vacation, unless you're sick, right? That should be the most guarded time in which you come together with the people of God to worship as one church and to glorify your Father in heaven. So, we're at a great aspect. Be the church. Well, Peter goes on and says that we are being built up together to something. Well, what is that something? To be a holy priesthood. We are all in here to be built up to a holy priesthood. This is where we get the idea of the priesthood of believers. Every living stone, every Christian that is a part of this spiritual house is a holy priest. Male, female, child, adult. This is my identity. This is your identity. You are a holy priest. One said this, every believer is a priest for themselves before God, and every believer is also a priest for every other believer before God. What a great picture this is. A priest back uh, during Peter's day and, and during the temple was responsible for a, a number of things, but the two most were, were sacrifices. Well, we don't have to worry about sacrificing. Why? Because Jesus already came and has become our high, great high priest, and he was the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. So that has always been accomplished. But the second thing they mainly would do, they were to minister to the people. They were to minister to the people. They were to, to counsel the people. They were to teach the, the word to the people. They were to pray for the people. These are the things that we are called to do for one another as holy priests. Peter gets even more specific of what it looks like to be a holy priest in verse 5. Look at verse 5. It says, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, what does that look like? Wayne Grudem points out several ways uh, via Scripture that we are holy priests making spiritual sacrifices. In Romans 12.1, we know this one, by the mercies of God, we are to offer up our bodies as what? Living sacrifices. So we offer up our bodies. We offer our, our services. We offer up being present. That's a spiritual sacrifice. Philippians 4.18 says this, we give our money, we give our resources sacrificially so that the gospel can go forth. Hebrews 13.16, my favorite, he says this, do not ne uh, neglect to do good, and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That you, you do good to one another. That you share with one another. Um, last week Matt talked about, it showed us in, second, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2 where it talked about malice and envy and slander and all that. He said, get rid of that stuff. We should be, we should be loving each other sacrificially. So what does it look like to be a spiritual sacrifice? Is anything that we do with the service of God in mind. Therefore, since you're a part of this building project, the church, you are a living stone. You are a holy priest. Use your gifts to build one another up. 
That's what the church exists for in one area is to build one another up. We exist. The reason why we come together is so that we can build one another up. We can use our gifts to build one another up. And again, I had several exhortations that I could say, well, what does that look like? What do we need to do? But I don't want to go there. I want to go to encouragement because I got a, a good view, a front row seat of what this church has done over the last 10 years. Many of you have been awesome priests. You guys have served this body well. You have served each other well. You have served my family well in a number of ways, from, from simple sacrifices like by bringing food on Sundays. I mean, there's not too many churches in Fort Collins, let alone the nation, that do that. And that's awesome. I mean, if, if we were doing that when I had my five kids, I mean, that's how I'm feeding my kids breakfast on Sunday mornings, right? Through your sacrifices. Every six weeks, each, each of your life groups, you come and you clean the church. Those are some spiritual sacrifices. Um, another simple way is the baby bottles. That's a simple way in which we can spiritually sacrifice for one another. Or when we make meals for, for, for families that have newborns, right? That's a simple way in which we can sacrifice for one another. And maybe that's not so much a simple way because we've had like 7,000 kids, right? And that could break the budget. But that's a way. But even, even at greater depths, we've seen people open up their homes to strangers because they needed a place to stay. We've seen our people open up to friends in time of need. We've seen you guys give sacrificially uh, to help people buy groceries, to help people pay rent, to help people buy a car, to help people buy a house. You guys have sacrifices with your treasures. We have people in here that are gifted in a number of areas. You know, think of this building and all the projects that it has, and we have people that donate their time. That's spiritual sacrifices. And again, not to mention all the times that you've prayed for other people, that you shared and counseled through God's word to other people. These are all ways in which you and I are holy priests, in which we minister to one another, and the way we build one another up. So we are being built together to be something, to be holy priests. So for the past 10 years, we've had a good run. Obviously, we're not perfect, and we can, we can grow. And so let's look for the next 10 years. This is the mission and the vision of this church, that we would be holy priests that would share the love, the mercy, and grace of the cornerstone of Christ Jesus. So let's do that together. Next we see... Uh-oh, I'm missing a page here. Built, that was the church. And next we see, I'm missing a whole page here. All right. Here we go. We see the builders. We see the builders. I tore that page up, so let me just go offline here. Here we go. Let me get my glasses back on. I ripped that page up. The builders, starting in verse 7. Starting in verse 7. Uh, where's verse 7? Here we go. Four stands of Scripture. Okay, there. So, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not 
uh, received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we see two builders here. The first builders are those that have rejected the stone, that have rejected Christ, that they go on throughout their life stumbling over the stone because they have built their lives on a sandy foundation, on a crooked cornerstone, on everything but Jesus. And so they they stumble and they fall. And when, that, when the winds and the rains come and that, and that foundation is, is blown away, they, they look to another foundation and they stumble over Jesus to go put, build their, their identity and their lives on another foundation, which is not Jesus. And they, they trip over the cornerstone. And this idea of, of rejecting the cornerstone, it's not a one-time rejection. It's that they do it over and over and over again, going from one sandy foundation to the next, tripping over the one true foundation that would bring them life, that would bring them hope, that would bring them peace, that would bring them joy. Jesus, we all know people like that. Heck, you and I were those people, but for the mercy of God, right? We were the ones going from sandy foundation to sandy foundation, tripping over Jesus until that one day, By God's mercy, he caused us to be born again. It says in here that these people reject him because of, they reject him um, in his word. They reject him. Where is that at? Here we go. Chosen. This is why I need notes, people. All right. They stumble because they disobey the word. That means they stumble because they disobey the gospel. They reject Jesus as they were destined to. This is where we have against God, God's mystery of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. And the thing I want us to point out here is, is Peter's making a point. He's saying this that was quoted, a stone stumbling and a rock of offense, I believe comes from Isaiah chapter um, 8. Um, He's saying that this shouldn't take us by surprise, that we see people offended by Jesus, that we see people stumbling over Jesus, that we see people hostile towards Jesus. This is the way it's been since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, beginning with Cain. And throughout Scripture, we've seen that everyone that trips and stumbles over Jesus usually is hostile towards Jesus and towards his people. And this is what Isaiah prophesied thousands and thousands of years ago, And this is what Peter's saying, hey, it's still happening today. So when you're in a culture that is offended by Jesus, and when you say you're a Christian and they're hostile to you, it's like, don't, that shouldn't catch you off guard. That shouldn't catch you off guard. You should expect that. You should expect that. And this is what Peter is saying. There was a a group of elementary school kids, and the teacher this is actually not, not as far off as the time that we live in. But the teacher was hostile to Christianity. And she says, I am an atheist. And she really wanted to prove that to their little kids. And she, and she asked her classroom, hey, how many of you guys are little atheists? And they had no idea what little atheists mean, right? So they all raised their hand, except for one. And the one little child, and she goes, oh, you're not an atheist. Well, what are you? She goes, the little girl says, well, I'm a Christian. She goes, oh, you're a Christian, are you? Well, how do you know you're a Christian? And the little girl says, well, you know, I I go to church, I listen to the gospel, my parents teach me about the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ. And and the teacher goes, oh, okay, that's good. But what if your parents were idiots? What would you become then? And the little girl kind of smiles and she goes, I'd be an atheist. (laughs) 
Now that softens the blow, but yet we understand that there's people out there that are hostile to Christians. And so what Peter's saying is here, don't, don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised by that. So those are the people who don't believe. And then we have the people who believe, the other builders. These are the ones who believe in Jesus as the cornerstone. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, this is about believing. This is about believing initially in Jesus and who he is. And then the verb tense goes, as you continue to believe. Verse 6, and whoever believes in him. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. Verse 9, when you come to him through faith and in believing, you become something. You become a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, these are all just titles that Peter uses to affirm what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11, that we as Gentiles who were once not a people are now a people of God. We who once had, received, had not received mercy, we have now received mercy, that we are the Gentiles that have been grafted in to make up the new Israel. And now we are recognized by God as the people of God. We, the church, again, verse 10 points this out. So now that Jesus is the living stone who is built, building his church, he is the master architect, but he uses us as co-laborers. Look at verse 9b. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. You see, it's through the proclamation of the gospel and all the excellencies that surround the gospel that living stones are added daily. And that's our job. That's what we're called to. As living stones, not only are we called to be holy priests, but we're also called to be holy ambassadors, ones who proclaim the good news of the gospel, one who are great ambassadors. So just take a pause and, and look at your life this week, this last week, this last month, and what has your life been proclaiming? When you look at your Facebook page or your Instagram page or whatever page, and you look at throughout it consistently, what is your life proclaiming to the world? Is Jesus in there anywhere? Or is it just a bunch of other things that are good things, but not the ultimate things? This is how Jesus has built his church for the past 2,000 years and how he will continue to build it. He will build it by us, you and me, living stones that are joined together, that are serving one another, but then also that we are sent out to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of of the excellencies of Jesus. That he is the one that has caused us to be born again. That he has transferred us out of the house of darkness and into the house of the marvelous light. This is what Peter has for us. The bedrock is Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. The building is the church to show the world the love, the joy, the grace, and the mercy of Christ. And the builders, there are some that reject and there's some that believe. And I just want to stop and point right here. If you are someone who's come here and you haven't, you've, you've been tripping and stumbling through life. Today is the day to not to trip on the Jesus, but to, to now build your life on the cornerstone of Jesus. And you do that by repenting of your sins and trusting what he has done for you. And we as a church would welcome you with open arms, with fullness of joy and love. So if that's you today, today is a day of salvation. Today is a day to stop stumbling throughout life and to build your life on the solid rock of Jesus. And if you've already done that, today is the day that we come together to worship the one true king, to encourage one another, to love on one another, to show mercy to one another, to pray for one another,
to lift one another up. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Lord, thank you for the church. Thank you that we don't have to travel to Jerusalem every year so our sins can be forgiven. But we simply come to you, the great living stone, the cornerstone of the church who is raised from the dead to defeat sin, death, and hell. And because of that, we come directly to you and we stop stumbling throughout life, but our life is built on the house, our life is built on the cornerstone of Jesus. And because of that, now we have direction, we have clear path to what pleases you and to how to be great ambassadors for those that do not know you. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.